Good evening, everybody. Happy solstice for that. For those whom that's a meaningful, a meaningful thing. I was having a conversation with Kozan a couple days ago about practice, and he asked me about the role of hope in Zen practice. And so I want to share just some contemplations on hope. And something that I think is excellent about Zen as a tradition is it is a training in flexibility of perspective. In a sense, freedom is celebrated as not fixating on any one point of view or way of relating to a situation or to the universe. And so that's true for hope as well. And there are aspects of what hope is that we can't even put words to. With words, we are limited to statements of is and is not, generally. We're trapped in the duality of being and non-being. It is like this, it is not like that. It is like that, it is not like that. So what can be said about hope is only what can be said about hope. It's not exhaustive, right? So I think in all Buddhist traditions, including Zen, if we practice well, what does that mean? That means something. If we practice well, there is hope for the relief of suffering. That hope is seen as wise. The difference between faith and hope not going to be able to fully tease out. But if one is practicing well and hope that this Dharma will work as a medicine for suffering, that is seen as a wise hope. Because in Dharma, we are interrupting the attitudes and stances towards experience that are suffering in themselves. They already are. It already is suffering, for example, to think hateful thoughts. It's already suffering. So the practice of not doing that is a relief for suffering. And we it's a wise hope that if we extend this these stances that interrupt suffering more and more pervasively in more and more moments of our life, in more and more situations, remembering the Dharma, oh yeah, the Dharma, then the hope for relieving suffering is a wise hope. And so the hope, in a sense, is holding an image in one's heart or having a sense that there is something down the pipe 
that is a better condition than the current one I'm in. Maybe that's the difference between hope and faith in some sense. Hope is pointing to a a sense, an image, that five years from now, ten years from now, I'll do this and things are going to be better. And that's absolutely the kind of hope we do engage with in Dharma practice. Now I'm going to come back, I'm going to spend most of the time talking about what false hope is. Because that's something maybe the teachings can help us with. As you know, I feel like we should go into and proceed with our practice with as little romantic notions as possible. A teacher might be able to abuse us of romantic notions so that we know what it is we're actually getting into and we can pare away some of the fantasies we have about practice. I want to just make a sidebar real quick that's not really something I want to spend much time talking about, but because a key aspect of Buddhism is confidence in cause and effect beyond this current lifetime, one element of hope that is pervasive in Dharma is that if one lives ethically, cultivating virtue, the future life one can hope for, it's a wise hope that one will have a good existence in the next life. Sound familiar? In a sense, it's um, you could think of it like one is painting positive energy, creating a work of art out of life that is one of positive energy, and that bears fruit even beyond the current existence. I mention that just because that is a big part of Buddhist practice, though we don't mention that very often. We don't talk about that so much. Okay, so um, our practice is, in a sense, based on emptiness. And emptiness is not is neither the absence of something nor the presence of something. It's it's the unfixed nature of what appears. That unfixed nature is bright because it's not solidified. So our hope is that there's always the possibility of love and wisdom. No matter what life circumstances come down the line, maybe some forms of dementia, for example, this would not be true, where one really loses faculties and intentionality. But those things aside, if the mind is healthy enough, there's always the possibility of love and wisdom in regards to whatever comes down the pipe. So tomorrow... Russia could drop a nuclear bomb right in the center of Arkansas. Country goes into some kind of chaos. You can hope. It's a wise hope. The possibility of love and wisdom. You can hope that you will enact those things, and that's a wise hope because you could. Right? 
because attitude and disposition and view are never fixed. That's the beauty and the gift of emptiness. Our attitude, our disposition, and our view are never fixed. Never completely fixed. Boy, they seem pretty fixed sometimes, don't they? Especially in other people. <laughs> they're, never, they're never completely fixed. This is different than the hope for being a different person. The hope that you can become a different person than you are is a delusion as far as Zen is concerned. That's a good one to take in because um, one could come into spiritual practice with some kind of idea or some kind of loathing that I don't really like myself and I'm going to make myself better through this into a version that I could actually love and accept because it's going to be shinier, more holy. And you could pretend that, but actually character structure barely changes at all. Barely changes at all in spiritual practice. Some of the what's extra can get cut away. Right? So the rough edges can get cut down. Reactivity definitely can be reduced. But you can't become a different person. So that would be a deluded hope that we might be able to catch. That, oh, I actually do have that. I hope that. That's different than the hope that I will relate differently to my character tendencies. Because the way we relate to experience is where our freedom is. The freedom of emptiness allows us to do that. I was thinking of some of the different kinds of practices I've done where I have embodied energies and ways of being way outside of my current, my mainline spectrum or my, my home base. But, you, but what I'm saying is that home base is always where we come back to, the core karmic formation. So hope is based on the space of formlessness. Now, the beautiful thing is when we really touch into that space of formless, wakeness mind, hope is irrelevant, as well as fear. There's no time, so there's no need for hope. There's no identity, so there's no person that's hoping for something to be better or worse. There's no aversion to what's arising, so there's no hope for something to be better. When we are... When true nature is remembering itself, when true nature is remembering itself, there is no hope. But interestingly, there's great um, confidence in the potential of all beings to know the very same thing, because they are it. So there is a profound wisdom optimism that comes from Dharma. Like any, all of us can have the experience of having overcome some kind of belief or challenge about ourselves. We've gotten outside of that little box of thought. We broke out and now we hear other people in the same box and we know that they don't have to be in it. 
There's a wisdom optimism. And you could hope that someone will recognize that. But that hope can be a kind of poison. It's more that there's just an optimism. There's a possibility. The possibility of waking out of the box of concept never stops. An experience I've um, interesting I've had with this is time when I've had upheavals. This is kind of a technical term, the upheaval. The upheaval is when um, usually it, it comes about when you're practicing intensely. You're practicing intensely and then you just have a mudslide of delusion come your way. You fall into some situation or some very strong reactivity or un unseen material erupts and you have an upheaval. It's humbling. In times when I've had upheavals, what's been really interesting is that I'm just totally, by all observation, a confused being, but I can still sit and recognize that space that is immutably free. I have hope, you could say. That gives me a kind of hope. It's, it's uh, uh, wisdom optimism is the term I like better. There's a lot articulated in different teachings about giving up hope in the practice. Because of the way hope is poisonous. Let me shift and talk about that some. Um, in Buddhist thought, there is no hope for a perfect world. And such hope is considered foolish. U utopian ideals are considered um, a fool's dream. At the same time, as there's this great emphasis on, on being a force of light in our culture, the hope that the world is ever going to be other than the world is considered just lacking wisdom. That could relieve a big burden, right? Because the hope itself is, is, some, is a weight it can be a leaden weight, like railing against the actual configurations of existence day in and day out. Wishing against, longing against, complaining towards, lamenting. None of that is being a positive light in the culture. So there's no hope in Buddhist thought of a perfect world. And so that means everything in the imperfect world, everything in the world that will never be perfect is likewise so. So I was telling somebody recently that, oh, you have pain and distress in your relationship? Well, sounds like a real relationship. That sounds like a real intimacy. And they were like, wait a second. 
You mean it doesn't mean something's wrong with my relationship if there's pain and anxiety and other things? And I was like, no, it sounds like it's real. It's not, it's not a real relationship if those things aren't there, at least sometimes. And this was a, a kind of a new thought for this person. It was rather sweet, actually. So we give up hope for perfection on the level of phenomena. Let me make a distinction here. This is really important. Perfection on the level of phenomena is a complete deluded fantasy. On the configuration of, of things. Because even if they're really good for a while, eventually you'll get tired of it. I remember Chris Rock making some crass joke about for every beautiful person in Hollywood, there's someone out there that's tired of sleeping with them. <laughs> it's quite funny. <laughs> Somehow Taylor Swift popped up on my phone today. And I had never really looked at Taylor Swift. I don't really know who she was. And I listened to some music and I watched and I thought, what a beautiful creature. What a beautiful creature. And then the next thing that popped up on my phone was a list of all the boyfriends she's had. Like 14 boyfriends in the last 10 years. And I thought, wow, that's how it is. That's real. So no hope for perfection on the level of phenomena. Somebody out there thinks Taylor's got too much of this or not enough of that. And whoever you could think of, somebody out there, out there feels that way about such a person. <laughs> but on the level of essence, we could call it, or on, on the... Uh, The nature, what, what, what this moment is made of is perfection. What it's held in is perfection. Those aren't two different things. It can, from those eyes, we can see that things in their imperfection are perfect, but there's no hope that they're going to be perfect on the level of phenomena. So hope can be a poison. Now we want to, as I began this talk, we want to smoke out our hope. We want to smoke out our confused hopes. One of the reasons is that hope for a better fill in the blank, hope for things to be different than they are, often means that we defer acceptance of the way things are perpetually. We can defer acceptance of the way things are perpetually because we're hoping they're going to change. And so we are deferring our actual power. Our power lies in we can relate wisely we can see deeper the nature of experience, but we lose that power in hoping that experience itself is going to somehow um, come down the pipe in a lasting way that's satisfying. It can't. The mind by nature is actually pretty fickle. And most of existence is a kind of toy it gets bored with very quickly. 
So hope becomes poisonous when it's a deferring of acceptance. Yeah, you could put your life on hold waiting for things to fall into place and you could do that forever, ostensibly. Hope is a poison also, it is taught, because hope is always attended by fear. So if you hope, for example, for somebody to change, check out and see if there's not also a fear that they're not going to. If you hope that whatever in the world is going to happen, there's also a fear that that won't happen. And so there's this um, hope is a kind of gives a kind of energy. It lifts and it drags at the same time, or it it energizes and it cuts at the same time. Because whatever we hope for, there's also a fear that our hopes designs will be blocked or hindered. So if you're hoping to get enlightened, you also fear that it might not happen. What if, what if you're like me and you spend way too much time doing this practice and enlightenment hasn't come? That's a terrible thing. So that is uh, hope always being attended by fear is something to investigate. Is that, is that true? Do they, do they actually come together like that? That's why I sometimes, we could talk, hope and expectation are related. And I talk about how um, you can be free of expectation and disappointment. You really can. It's really good. It's part of what equanimity means. Life is still life. There's still all the good flavors of life, all the bad flavors of life. But you can be free from um, expectation and disappointment because you make those things. I make those things. Life doesn't have any promises. Zero. Zip. Zilch. So, we want to catch the interaction of hope. If this be, if the, for this to be workable. And how to spot it. It's watching for a certain style of thinking. I mean, you might actually catch the word hope in your mind. If you examine those thoughts, that part of you that's doing that, it's in one of these, these, these modes of being and seeing. Sometimes you might only be able to discover hope by the disappointments you experience. You're disappointed because there was some hope that uh, the outcome of something or the result or the experience was going to be different than it, than it was. And you catch it in that moment when you're disappointed or let down, you can really see that you didn't, you didn't have to bring hope into the situation. It still would have been what it was. So, 
instead of um, hoping, we put out positive energy. Instead of um, hoping, we touch through experience an optimism about life that's based on something uh, genuine and not in the future. Hope is always about the future. It's always about the future, but we don't live in the future. We don't even live in the present. That's another fantasy, but we definitely don't live in the future. But we have, we have optimism about what this presence is based on, based on direct uh, experience. So there's lots of other, other nuances, like where does intentionality fit into this and where does um, encouraging people when, how do we counter despair? All of these things are very relevant and important questions. One of the things that Kozan was bringing up is, is witnessing the despair of young people. And if you tell them that the world, everything's going to be fine, it's bullshit on a, on a phenomenal level. That is a lie. It is not true. That's never been true, even in whatever era we fantasize was great. It was never true. So in some sense, um, hope is... Ordinary hope is poison, and, and this, this wisdom optimism is somehow available for everyone. It is somehow available. It was available for us. We're not particularly special people, and we've arrived at a tradition that points to something deeper than hope. So somehow it's available for everyone. And so there's reason for a certain kind of optimism, but hope? That's what I want to say about hope for now. What does this bring up for any of you? Olivia. I have a question. Um, I'm really really interested in what you were talking about with not being able to really change who you are. And you specifically said the hope that you will become a different person. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on person because I, I do feel like certain things are malleable and then there's definitely things that I came in here with and that despite my best efforts are still deeply present. Yeah. Um, so is person conditioning? Is person mm-hmm. like just our essence? But exactly think, what do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, I think... I don't know if they're really... So um, character structure is pretty firm. I suppose you could, one could really put tremendous energy into changing their character structure. 
let's say a person was a serious and sober kind of person, they might be able to become a cheerful person after 20 years of some kind of work. But from a Dharma point of view, why do that? Better put that energy into awakening and just be an awake, sober, serious person. Who cares if you're not cheerful? So it is, um, I guess, possible, but pretty, pretty firm by a certain by a certain age. Yeah. So what you're recognizing as malleable is exactly what is what is malleable. It's beautiful to know what's changeable about ourselves and what is really. Like I lament for years, I walked into Powell's books and I was like, can I be interested in something other than the spirituality section? Lord, let me find plants or beer or something interesting besides the same old stuff. And it never happened. Never happened. 15 years, same, interested in the same thing, ordering the same books on Amazon. Adrian's always like, you just get a different version of the same book all the time. <laughs> I try. I pretend that I can actually be much different, but. So, isn't that cool? We're just like each this unique, crystallized karmic being that doesn't need to be somebody else. We just have to work with what we've got, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like what you said following that. It's, that it's the freedom is in how we relate to how we are not in trying to get it to be different necessarily. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Kevin. Um, what phrase this? I, uh, something I've been reading is talking about sort of, are, it, it was talking about emotions on some level, but really just our our relationship to experience and the sort of aggression we have against it sometimes, and um, and that it is that sort of false hope of wanting it to be otherwise. And uh, I don't know if I, this is going to come into a cogent thought, but this it sort of your talk sort of merged into uh, something I've been reading that. I never quite thought of, which is this, I guess I'd never really thought of it as aggression that, um, is the constricting factor sometimes, or the, you know, sometimes we think of anger and aggression, but also sort of wanting it to be better is a sort of aggression too. It is. And that was, yeah, Sounds that's like just been sort of alive for me. And yeah. Think about hope as aggressive, aggressive sort of. That's right. Way. Sounds like Trungpa. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah he's great. He, he articulates because he saw that in us culturally, right? Yeah. Like the beauty of someone coming in from the from outside of culture, they can see that we have this this speedy, aggressive, almost like um, we want to dominate phenomena. Yeah. We're gonna just do it. Right, we have this spirit. <laughs> we're, we're we're warriors. We're warriors at phenomena, right? Yeah, yeah. 
course, that could be transformed. What do you mean by that? Well, the energy of aggression is, is an energy still. And so it's like um, an intensity of presence would be what would be left. Yeah. And sometimes in Tantra, they call it passionless passion. Yeah. Okay. Fancy phrase. Yeah. Uh, Jogan, a question. There's a phrase we've all heard many times. It's uh, don't get your hopes up. What's the truth of that phrase for you? For me? Don't get your hopes up. Yeah. Well, I just think that's such good advice. Because what there's still so much happiness and joy without getting our hopes up. That's the thing. It's, it, that's part of the non-aggression. The non-aggression is like um, accepting the amount of joy and good stuff that does come. And so we don't need, we don't need the hope. I don't, I don't, I don't need, I don't need expectation. I can have faith that, um, there'll be enough beauty and meaning and learning coming down the pipe. Well, we always witness other people falling into the trap of hope. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> it's so easy to see it when it's not you. <laughs> Like, you, usually it's over a meal or a person or a show or something. My biggest, my one of my major bourgeois dukas now is I get into like a series, right? And the and like the series gets canceled. And I had so much hope that I was going to know what happened as the series evolved. And then they pulled the budget, you know, whatever happens at HBO or whatever. And... <laughs> I cause myself this bourgeois duca, this suffering of, oh no. Like if they don't make silo season two, I'm quitting life. I'm just quitting. It's that good, right? You should watch. <laughs> so it's so easy to see in other people the foolishness of getting the hopes up. But for us, when we're in it, it's, so, it's really hard. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe when you're in your 60s, it gets easier. What do you think? No, no. I was just at dinner with like a couple in their 60s who are getting married and they have the kind of romantic idealism of like teenagers. It was really sweet. But also I was like, wow, it's just a person. You know? <laughs> person can only do so much for you as far as happiness. Stand by that. Oh, yeah. Hope springs eternal. Don't get your hopes up, but optimism based on wisdom is um, worthy. Yeah. That's the thing that like the great Dharma teachers are in this pickle about. They don't want you to get hopeful about your idea of the object or experience of enlightenment. But what that word enlightenment is actually pointing to is worth all of the, um, it's the optimism is founded, but it's not out there in the future. <laughs> 